This is The Healthy Sensitive, episode 31. Welcome everyone to The Healthy Sensitive, a podcast dedicated to highly sensitive people and introverts who are trying to find a way to fully come alive and live their best lives. I'm Leah Burkhart, your hostess on the show, and today what I want to talk about is romance. It's funny, when it comes to romance, so romantic love, I should say, I think, and this is my personal opinion and I'm being very presumptuous, I think we're all a little bit dumb. In so many other areas in my life, I just feel really, really good. Like, I at work, I'm confident, I'm personable with my friends, I'm really easygoing. Um, and not like the fake kind where you say you're easygoing, but you're actually kind of neurotic and miserable, but the real kind where you really, it, it's very difficult to ruffle me when it comes to my friends. Um, I easily find harmony with my family, although my family is as quirky and dysfunctional as anyone else's. Um, and by myself alone, without anyone to distract me from my thoughts, I pretty much like myself. Um, I think I'd go so far as to say that I love myself. It's really a very nice life that I've been lucky enough to land, so no complaints. But, because you knew there was going to be a but, uh, when it comes to romance, I've got to be completely honest, a lot of my confident, easygoing, self-loving awesomeness can fly right out the window. Uh, and in its place, I'm usually left with a goofy, clumsy, uncertain, vulnerable, messy creature. Uh, don't get me wrong, I mean, the girl before me is still very well-intentioned. She means well. Um, she's just not really a sure-footed. She makes mistakes. Um, green is no longer my favorite color, but the nature of the way I would describe my relationship with love. <laughs> green on the vine and shaky as a doe. <laughs> so, I mean, I do want to say, though... First of all, I don't think it's just me, and I definitely don't even think it's just highly sensitive people who struggle with this area. Um, and in our defense, and in by our, I mean all of humanity, you know, it is kind of an inebriating experience, romance. Um, it's the strongest drug I personally have ever experimented with, and although I haven't experimented with many. Um, and I don't really need to go over the details of the science to prove this to you. I could. I mean, we can talk about all of the fields um, in scientific terms, but I'm pretty sure personal experience is sufficient enough. So, I mean, you know that feeling, right? You know, you see someone across the room and your eyes meet, and for a moment you are some combination of shaken and paralyzed. You're mesmerized. You don't want to look away, and yet you're terrified they're going to think you're nuts, so you do look away, but you know they saw you looking, and they also saw you looking the other direction, so now you just feel absolutely absurd. And if you're fortunate enough, fortunate enough to like take it to the next step, maybe you start a conversation. I mean, you might notice yourself reflexively, reflexively following some of their mannerisms. You look for any excuse to touch them. Like if they hand you something... You take that as an opportunity to maybe graze their hand as you exchange whatever item it is that he or she may be handing you. Um, he reaches a grab around to grab something and gently taps your back, basically just saying, hey, I'm here, you know, just FYI. And you feel like you just touched the railing in a hotel casino at Vegas because the shock is just fabulous. 
And then you spend the next week imagining what it would be like to kiss them. And then also, and then also, and then maybe then, and so on. No amount of alcohol has ever stolen away my ability to rely on my trusty prefrontal cortex. And here I promised I wouldn't do scientific lingo. Um, my willpower, my capacity to make executive decisions. I, any, when I drink alcohol, I'm usually very deliberate about how much. You know, any kind of substance I've ever consumed has been something I've taken with great care and have still been able to manage general decision-making processes. <laughs> but infatuation? A crush? No, not at all. It's an avalanche of sensation. My whole system gets hijacked as I muddle through the delicious wonder of what it means to be really just into somebody. And as I mentioned five times already, I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in this because I've watched some of the most confident and self-assured people I know, some of the most easygoing, go with the flow, or maybe even the reverse of that, the most neurotic control freaks, melt into a puddle of insecure putty at the minute someone they really, really like walks in the door. I mean, it's just wild. So all of that is just the infatuation part. Like, that's just the part where it's like, hey, how you doing? <laughs> I, and I don't want to be so bold as to assume highly sensitive people feel this in a greater degree than do others. I can personally testify to the fact that I tend to use stronger language when describing it, but that may just be because I'm so infatuated with language and so really want to be deliberate about the choices that I make with which words I choose and all of that. So I can say, though, that with other highly sensitive people I've met, they seem equally disturbed and yet delighted by the infatuation process. Because, I mean, you have to remember, it's not that highly sensitive people feel more things than do other people. They just tend to feel them more intensely. So I'm kind of curious as to whether or not that might also be true with love, or rather lust. So I don't have the answers to that, but I'd be really interested in finding them out. I've been trying to research some of Elaine Aaron's stuff, uh, but as it happens, Elaine Aaron's work is mostly done in the realm of relationships. So let's go ahead and get into relationships then. If the initial buzz of desire isn't enough, <laughs> so you finally get through that, now you've decided, hey, you, you're now my person. It only gets more complicated. So it's weird, right? Because we equal parts want to let all our walls down. We want to show them everything. We want to disclose everything. We want to give them, like, look at all my birthmarks and quirks and funky weirdness. And at the same time, we want to reinforce those walls. So we're perfectly happy to, you know, project out all of the pretty things that we have to offer, but we desperately want to hide if it is at all possible all of the crap, the stinky crap of being a human being to the person that we're really trying to get to love us. We go into relationships hoping that we'll get unconditional love, as in they'll love us because we're just awesome, you know, moles and all. And yet we, and by we I mean I, put conditions on the love that we dish out. I mean, I'd like to think that I don't, but I do when they upset me. I withhold affection. I'm, less, I'm more closed off. And maybe it's not fair to say I stopped loving them, because that's definitely not true, but my ability to express that love gets closed down. So as far as the other person's concerned, whether or not I love them or 
don't love them, that's all... As far as they're concerned, I must not love them because I'm not expressing it in a way that I ordinarily would. So, there's that. Shocking, then, given that we equal parts want to show all of ourselves and yet none of ourselves, or at least not the icky parts, and we are desperate to find someone who will love us unconditionally, even as we put conditions on the love we give out. Shocking that half of marriages end in divorce. <laughs> so... Which then brings me to, once again, highly sensitive people. So here's some interesting things. Apparently, highly sensitive people seem to have an even greater difficulty with romance than the average person. At least if what you're using to like prove that or as substance to be able to, to point to that is testimony. So, I mean, again, with all of this stuff, we lie to ourselves all the time. So there's nothing that could say that we're not lying to others as well. But according to what people are willing to disclose when answering questions about love and romance and so on, highly sensitive people at least are more willing to admit that they have great difficulty with romance. I can certainly speak to this from personal experience, as I'm a highly sensitive introvert who struggles in this area. And I don't mean that I struggle with loving people, because I'm very, very happy to love. I, I love loving and I love being loved. It's more that... So, like, on the issue of romance, we seem to have a special kind of struggle. Um, it seems odd for a group of people who are notorious for wanting to work in harmony with others that we would struggle, but there it is. We're an empathetic group. So, that's a good thing. We attract people because we're empathetic. We're very attuned to our environment. And let me tell you, if we have a mate, you, my dear, sweet, sorry mate, <laughs> you're now in my environment, and I'm now going to be very attuned to you. Highly sensitive people really like harmony, and so we will go out of our way to foster harmony, with a, certainly with another person, because disharmony is very uncomfortable. We're more easily hurt, so words that you might say sort of cat with a sense of ease or, or just blowing off steam we absorb that with greater intensity and we'll remember it. So once we're hurt, we also don't seem to heal as quickly. Um, we, when I, I mentioned this already in terms of having sensitivity to our environment, but we specifically seem to have a high mate sensitivity, as in we take a great deal of time and energy to look at and pick apart what's happening with our mate so as to make them feel better. I'm sure that level of scrutiny is just lovely to, to have be on the receiving end of, but at any rate... So it's harder than to take care of ourselves because we're so focused on you. And then also we need more downtime than the average person, just as a general rule. So on the one hand, you can see why people might be attracted to highly sensitive introverted people like myself. Oh, you're so sweet and you're so nice and you want to make me all comfortable. That's really cool. And I can exude this experience for you of, oh, well, I don't really need anything. I've got this. Let me help you. Because as, I mean, personally at least, I am pretty good at taking care of myself. And I don't actually need a whole lot when it comes to the things that I want to receive from another person. But I still do have needs. And so here's the cycle that we tend to get caught up in. I like harmony. And you're my mate. So I love you. I love when you're happy. Because when you're happy, I can feel your happiness. That is that empathy. And that makes me feel good. Also, I like harmony. I mentioned that about 50 times now. So if you are unhappy, I feel your unhappiness. 
and that makes me extremely uncomfortable. Now, it may have been that whatever it is that I needed could be the very thing making you uncomfortable. I might be asking something of you that you may or may not want to give, and that stirs friction. Well, I don't want friction because then that makes you uncomfortable, which makes me uncomfortable. So over time, I mean, it, it starts off with little things like I want to go to a healthy restaurant and you want to go to Burger King or whatever. I don't care. I'm not trying to just bash Burger King, any fast food joint. And I relent because, well, you want that thing and you definitely don't want the thing I wanted. And even though I'm not happy with the food that we're going to eat, I'm happy that you're happy with the food that we're going to eat. And so my general overall state of happiness is relatively good. It's in the net positive. But over time, if I don't keep filling up my needs or if I'm not clear about my needs, it can build resentment, which isn't really fair to the other person because as far as they're concerned, they were just saying what they wanted and then I complied. So what the hell is wrong with me? Why am I upset now? And you have to remember, too, there's a lot going on here. So in terms of decision-making, just as, it, you know, in terms of like the restaurant example that I gave, decision-making goes into this, too. Elaine Aaron talked about this, and I actually wrote a, another article about why we, have, we struggle with decision-making, if you're curious and want to go visit. But when it comes to making decisions, highly sensitive people will have a preference. So will a non-highly sensitive person. A highly sensitive person tend, will tend to feel much more strongly about their preference than will the non-highly sensitive person because it took so much neurotic contemplation to arrive at their answer to, to begin with. So if they have, they're willing to actually say now, I want juice or what, I don't care what it is they want. I want blah. <laughs> and their mate says, but I want blah. Non-HSPs tend to use more robust and clear language because they're not as worried or concerned about causing friction. And by, again, I don't want to make it seem like, you know, non-HSPs are these Neanderthals who are unaware of their people. I just mean they're not as obsessed with disturbing the peace. They're more willing, as a rule, to just put themselves out there and say, okay, well, this is who I am, this is what I want, and so the highly sensitive person will hear the language of a person who's not an HSP and assume, oh my god, they really feel really strongly about this, simply because they used stronger language and a more robust tone. Conversely, the non-HSP who's looking at the highly sensitive person is going to be sitting there being like, well, they didn't really seem that adamant about their choice, so clearly it's not that important to them. But in reality, it was. So all of this stuff can stir up. And again, this is just a relationship between a highly sensitive person and a non-highly sensitive person. So most of humanity and a HSP. <laughs> it can get just as complicated with two HSPs. So you could end up with two highly accommodating people who are so, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, well, it doesn't matter. They're so preoccupied with their partner's desires that they don't ever take the time to think about their own. And so you end up in this cycle of, well, what do you want to do? Well, I don't know. What do you want to do? Well, I don't know. What do you want to do? Well, I don't care. What do you want to do? Over and over and over again. And you might end up with boredom. They're so accommodating and there's so little friction that there's no growth. And who do you think cares about growth? Highly sensitive people. It's absolutely absurd. I, I mean, you don't love a highly sensitive person on a dime. You love them on a dare. So <laughs> you got the best way that I heard in terms of organizing all of this information 
was from a gentleman who said that really when you're talking about relationships, you're talking about them like stakeholders. And there are three stakeholders in any romantic relationship. I mean, at least any monogamous? Monogamous is marriage, though, so... Any partnership where you've an exclusive romantic relationship, you have three stakeholders. You have you, them, the, your partner, and then the third person is the relationship itself. Here's the real issue highly sensitive people typically are very good at filling the cup of someone else, and they're very good at filling the cup of the relationship on the whole. When they get into this kind of pattern, they will forget to fill up their own cup. And over time, I mean, at first, no big deal, because they tend to be pretty good at just, you know, filling up their own cup. But over time, it builds resentment. And then you end up with a relationship that absolutely just falls apart. That's not really fun. <laughs> it ends up looking a whole lot more like a codependent relationship than a healthy partnership. Because what highly sensitive people will tend to do is say to their person... I think you're a good person, and I think I'm a good person, and so I'm a good person. You deserve a good person, and I am one, so I'm going to go ahead and walk into your life and be your person. And I'm going to go ahead and take care of anything that you might happen to need taken care of. I will be your be-all, end-all. I will make your life much better. I'm, I will, I will, I will. It's all ego. It's not really love. It's not that we don't love. We do, but that pattern of behavior isn't necessarily love. Because, and I am always adamant about this, you cannot love anyone more than you love yourself. You can't do it. And so the moment that a highly sensitive person in particular stops with their regular self-care, they fall deeper and deeper into these patterns. And I've talked about this before. It's super counterintuitive. When a highly sensitive person is stressed, or really when anyone is, anytime that we as human beings get stressed, we tend to rely on our patterns of behavior, sort of our knee-jerk, habitual behaviors. So highly sensitive people tend to have the pattern of behavior. In yoga, they call them samskaras. Um, in psychology, you might just call them <laughs> habits. <laughs> but basically, it's a series of decisions you tend to make because you've built a pathway that has shown you to be successful over and over and over again. For highly sensitive people, they seek out harmony, and they do it unconsciously. So it's not like they sit there and think to themselves, I'm going to choose harmony. It's knee-jerk response. Highly sensitive people can be more deliberate. They can learn to back off and really reflect and say, well, wait a second. I need to actually pause for a minute here and not just jump right in to try and fix everything for you or for us. If I don't have a full cup, I'm not going to be able to do this well. So they can do that, but they can only really do that when their cup is full. And so you end up in this very vicious cycle of, I'm getting increasingly tired because I'm spending all of what I've got on you and on this romance. And the more I do that, the more I'm inclined to keep doing it. And that doesn't work well for either party. On top of that, highly sensitive people tend to be drawn to those who want empathy. Well, who are the kinds of people who want empathy? I mean, all of humanity, I know, but often troubled people want a caring ear. So, Highly sensitive people can sometimes be drawn to those who want help. Not a great, and this is just in the research. I'm not saying that this is personal experience or that it's not. I'm just saying this is what's out there in the literature. So you combine all of this stuff and you end up 
with a really, well, like I've mentioned all over and over again, kind of a crappy situation. And then the final feather on top of the hat is that because highly sensitive people tend to be very good at observing patterns, they're going to be more quick than the average person to note some of these toxic behaviors and either, number one, try and reverse them, at least for themselves, or number two, try and get both me, the HSP, and you to reverse both of our behaviors. And that's an uncomfortable thing for another person to receive. I mean, who really likes it when their partner is like, hey, you're doing some dumb stuff. I need you to stop that. <laughs> I'm also doing dumb stuff. and I'm going to stop my stuff. It's exhausting. So I guess the short version of this is that to love a highly sensitive person is to be involved with someone who's going to require a lot of patience and a lot of work. And to be a highly sensitive person in love requires a lot of self-compassion and a lot of self-love. We have a tendency, I think, to see this whole thing as a mess, but the more I keep looking at it, the more I'm starting to really see romance as more of a dance. In, in thinking about this process like a dance, it's allowed me to relax a lot more into it. I mean, so if we're going to use this as the metaphor, life at large could be the DJ. You know, the songs change. One minute, the economy is booming and we're playing rock and roll and the next minute it's a melancholy state of affairs it's 2008 and this stock market crash and so it's a sad love song <laughs> and we the dancers don't really get to control the music we can influence it so I can apply to a new job or I can apply to a university or I can ask for something that I want, but that's no guarantee that I'm going to get it. And in the same way, we can request a song from a DJ, but that's no guarantee that he or she is going to play that particular song. So our job is just to kind of learn to dance with whatever music is playing in the background. Again, we don't have any control over the tempo. We just have control over our steps and how we learn to dance with it. So as you're moving along, it's hard enough just as an individual human to groove out and figure out how to get your rhythm. It's even more difficult for a highly sensitive person because if you're, again, you're using this metaphor, we're hearing all of these random little nuances of the music that other people might not be keying into as keenly. And so we are sort of like, whoa, this is incredible. The music is, wow, it's, oh my God. We finally figure out how to get our limbs in order and figure out how to move ourselves. And then, bam, we maybe bump into someone else and they ask us if we'd like to dance. Now we have a whole new set of challenges. I have my, like I have a certain way of dancing, you have a certain way of dancing, and we kind of have to slow down and figure out, okay, well, how do we sort of match each other and dance in, to the same rhythm, and how do we do that? And you assess, maybe you do a great sort of dance, lingo, whatever thing for one song, and then the song shifts to a different tempo and all of a sudden you realize, oh my god, this is a sheer disaster. We have to stop. <laughs> and we hope the dance will last forever. Like, we hope that when we bump into this person and we've decided that, well, I'm willing to dance with you and you're willing to dance with me, some part of us really wants to think that this human that we're dancing with will be able to dance with us whatever music might be playing in the background. That's the hope. Because dancing with someone is fun. It's neat to realize, wow, you know, to kind of, it's play. But you learn after a little while that you maybe don't dance perfectly well to every song. And maybe you even start stepping on each other's toes. 
in some cases, frustrated though you might be, you, you persevere. So some couples do this. They meet, they start dancing, i.e. they get together. Life throws them some curveballs, i.e. music that's really kind of stupid and they don't like dancing to, but meh, we'll figure it out. Um, and even though they step on each other's feet, they sort of go, okay, well, you know, that's fine, it's fine. We'll just learn new steps. We'll go to a dance choreographer or something. We'll figure this stuff out. And they keep on dancing. Great. Sometimes they step on your toes one too many and your bruised and battered feet finally cave in and say, you know, <laughs> I don't think we're good dance partners. Now, one thing that I think is really tragic if we use this metaphor of romance as a dance. When our partner steps on our feet, we have a tendency upon finally getting sick of it and saying, okay, well, you've stepped on my feet way too many times and my feet are bruised and battered and I'm miserable and unhappy and I want to leave you, damn it. So we walk away and we think, holy crap, that person is a really shitty dancer. <laughs> we assume that it's their fault. We assume, oh, well, I know how to dance when it's just me. So obviously they're the problem. But most of the time, with very rare exceptions, and when I'm talking rare exceptions, I'm talking sociopaths who are out to step on your feet and that brings them joy. Most of the time, they're great dancers. They just weren't a good dancer with you. So all you have to really do to know that is turn around and watch for a moment as they revert back to dancing by themselves. And it won't take you long to remember Oh, that's why I wanted to dance with them. They're fabulous. They're great dancers. We just couldn't dance together. It's not their fault, but it's also not my fault. And so you just let it go. That, to me, feels a whole lot better than assuming that we're, like, finding only one person that we could dance with, because there's only one! Well, maybe that's not true. Maybe there was only one who could dance with you during that particular song. And then the song changed. And you, neither of you had the capacity to shift gears in that way. You know, as they say, sometimes, some people come into your life for a reason and some for a season. Either way, the beat goes on. So how do we learn to dance and not get wrapped up in the, is he a good dancer, am I a good dancer, any of that kind of crap. I think to start with, you have to kind of figure out what your must-haves are and what your can't-stands are. So moving away from just life as metaphor, you know, what is the line that I'm trying to look for? It's um, figure out what your non-negotiables are and then don't negotiate. So in terms of needs, as an example, I've discovered through trial and error that I need a relationship with someone that I can talk to. I've experienced what it's been, what it's like to be in a romance where many of my needs are met, but I can't talk to them. I can't communicate with them. Now, to be clear here, I also want to discern between wants and needs. Wants are the things that are negotiable. Needs are the things that are not. I want to be with someone who I can not only talk to, but philosophize with. Talk about the meaning of life with, baby. I want to get, get into the nitty-gritty here. I want to talk about the power of existence and consciousness and all that woo-woo bullshit. I want to talk about all of that stuff. But I don't really need that. I've got lots of people in my life that I can have those conversations with. But what I do need is the ability to just share myself with a person who's also capable of sharing themselves. 
I want to be heard and I want to listen. I need that exchange to be available. So even if we can't talk about the meaning of life, can we talk about what's meaningful to our, both of us in our lives? I also find that I absolutely need physical touch. This is not, uh, gee, I would really like to have it. It's a non-negotiable. Um, to be honest, I blame my family. <laughs> I mean, when I was a little girl, I can remember, you know, like any time that I was sick, my mom would soothe me by running a hot bath. She'd throw a hot towel, in the, or not a hot, it wouldn't be hot then. She'd throw a towel in the dryer so that when I was done with taking a bath, she could cocoon me in this freshly warmed cloth like I was the Queen of Sheba. And if I was anxious, she would take her fingertips and just lightly graze my arm up and down, up and down, and it would lull me into a sleep. And my dad, I mean, he was, he's a bear. Like, he, he's all about touch. He's a huge hugger. He's probably one of my favorite huggers. And so when I was really young, one of my, like, our favorite pastimes was just, you know, I'd you know, come out of my bedroom and he would still, he would be in his bed and remote control in his hand watching cooking shows and I would crawl into bed with him and we would just sit there and watch Jacques Poupon and he would let me cuddle. He was a cuddler. And so, I mean, I love that stuff. That touches how my family says I love you. Hugs, cuddling, you know, head massage, whatever. And so that's kind of how I learned to say I love you. And then the talk stuff, the need to communicate, that came mostly from my mom. But, you know, like when I had troubles, I would come to her and I would say, Mom, I'm struggling. I, there's a boy and I really like him and I don't know if he likes me. <laughs> and she would talk to me. And just in having someone hear me, I would realize, oh, I'm loved. Uh, I think the the term for this, by the way, is uh, love languages. Or at least this is the best way I've seen it organized. So, oh no, I'm, gonna, I'm forgetting the name of the author. It'll be in the show notes. Um, but the name of the book is The Five Love Languages. And the gentleman who wrote it organized uh, the ways in which we express and hope to receive love in five categories. One is physical touch, which I've mentioned. And that can include sex, by the way, but it doesn't necessarily include sex. So you could very easily have someone who has an extremely high sex drive, who's mated with a person who also loves physical touch, but who has a low sex drive. And you could have plenty of conflicts there where it's like, well, I want to have sex with you. Oh, well, that's fine, but I just want you to hug me. And I'm not willing to have sex with you if you don't cuddle with me first. Like, you can have all of that mess. So physical touch is definitely a spectrum everything from holding hands all the way into, into sexual intimacy. Uh, the next one is quality time. So it's just giving someone your undivided attention. And that, to me, is huge because as far as I'm concerned, time is really the most, like, a, the scarce resource that we have. I mean, even money, is it's a resource and it's limited, but you, on some level, can figure out a way to get more money. You can't keep buying yourself more time we all have a finite amount of it. So for me, for someone to give me their time and their attention is huge. Um, acts of service is another where it's like someone who loves you will can do anything from I'm going to do your laundry all the way to um, I'll take your mother to the hospital. I'll take the kids to school. I mean, anything. It's, it's let me take this burden away from you so that your life is a little easier. It's let me like, let me show you how much attention I'm paying to you by removing obstacles in your way. Um, the next one is words of affirmation. So it's 
my God, you're beautiful. Or, oh, I love the way you, I don't even know what you would insert here, but you, anything, any kind of compliment that's authentic and real. So you don't get to just be like, you're so awesome. You're so awesome. You're so awesome. No, it's got to be really specific. The more specificity that you can get to, the more authentic it feels. So it's one thing to say, oh, you're beautiful. You're beautiful. Whatever. It's another thing to say, wow, your eyes just pop when you're wearing that shirt. I love this. Or, God, it is so wonderful. Every time I come into this kitchen, it's clean. And I just appreciate the hell out of that. Thank you. So it can be expressions of gratitude. It can be expressions of appreciation. But either way, it's verbal validation. I really love you. And then the final one is tangible gifts. So going, going out of your way to get something that you know your partner would like. Um, examples of this can be jewelry, as in, you know, every kiss begins with K, you know, all of that kind of gobbledygook. But it can also be noting when your partner sees something that lights them up. And then maybe you both walk away, and then a couple of days later, you go and you snag it for them. And you buy it for them as a gift. It can mean flowers and candy. It can mean... it's. And the idea, I think for a long time, tangible gifts was one I was super resistant to, especially as someone who is enamored with the concept of minimalism. It's like gifts, ew. But I've totally come around on this one. It's not, it's still not my primary or even my secondary one that I appreciate, but it's a way of giving a tangible thing to a person so that every time you see it, you're reminded, oh, that's right, this person loves me. Physical touch and quality time, that's a memory, but we might, it might fade. It's not as tangible and in-your-face as a physical thing. So this is why people who like tangible gifts like them so much. It says to them, oh, you love me enough to pay enough attention to then go out of your way and get this thing. And now I will forever have this reminder for as long as I have the thing that you love me. So as I've mentioned, and you've noted for me, physical touch and quality time are definitely my two big ones. I like acts of service, words of affirmation are lovely, tangible gifts are really fabulous, I like them, they're all great. But all those things are wants. Physical touch and quality time, those things are needs to me. If I can't have them, I can't have you, or rather you can't have me. Now moving on to the can't stands. <laughs> Can't stands are the things that if you do them, it it really just, mm -mm, nope, can't, it, it, there's no hope. For me, can't stands are when you are willing to insult my humanity, my character. It's one thing to insult my behavior. You can tell me I do stupid things all day long because I do stupid things. <laughs> all day long. <laughs> um, and most of the time I'm completely unaware of them. I'm clumsy and I, I'm self-absorbed all the more because I'm more sensitive and therefore I'm like locked up in my own thoughts most of the time. So I'm absent-minded and I easily will miss things that are, might be very important to you. So if you, a person that cares about me, pull me aside and you say, hey, you did something back there and that hurt. Don't do that. That is perfectly appropriate. You can even use swear words when you say it. But it's a very different thing to say, you are a screw-up. So an insult to what I did, like, come on, you're better than that. What was that? Is different than, wow, I thought you were smart. Turns out you're pretty stupid. Very different. You did something bad. You are bad. 
the minute whatever insults you're slinging in my direction hit at something that is a core part of who I am, I can't do anything about that. So there's no escaping. There's no, I can't fix, I can fix my behavior. I can't fix who I am. So if you go and you encroach on the arena of disrespect or of, um, it's not just disrespect. It's when you almost disgust that, that sense of like, Ooh, I don't even like who you are. That's, that's a can't stand. As soon as that happens, it's, it's, it's broken. I, I, I've had to learn the hard way. It goes that far once and I might try with everything I've got to make it better, but no. Another can't stand uh, a betrayal of my trust. If someone lies to me, and in particular, if someone tries to put my health on the line or my life on the line, um, or is willing to sort of lie to me for their own benefit, as soon as the trust is severed, that's a can't stand. If I can't trust you, I can't love you because I don't know you. I need to know you to be able to trust you. I need to be able to trust you to really love you, at least to love you romantically and want to commit to you. I mean, I all of the people who have sort of crossed these lines, I would actually still say that I love them. I want nothing but the best for them, but I can't remain in relationship with them. So these are some examples of my can't stands, as in like, if you do it, we're done. I'd love for you to be kind of thinking as we're going through this process, you know, what are your primary love languages and what are your can't stands? And once you figure all of that out, the final thing you might want to play with is changing or at least thinking about how you define success. From what I've gathered from people that I've spoken to, people as a rule tend to think that success in romantic relationships is like linked with longevity. So if you're with someone, the relationship is successful for as long as that relationship is intact, i.e., as long as you've chosen not to break up. I don't know if that's a very useful definition of success, or at least it's not comprehensive. I feel like it's one piece. Because personally, I've seen couples who have stayed together and who've only really succeeded at making each other utterly miserable. I've also seen couples who divorce, who become friends in their divorce, they figure out how to navigate the complexities of splitting assets and childcare with relative ease. And the relationships may have ended, but on some level, I mean, I, it looks like a success to me. Elizabeth Gilbert, when she talked about, you know, she went through a really rough divorce, and she talks about this in her book, Eat, Pray, Love. And at one point, she talks about how she compared her experience with others who were in the midst of a divorce. And she says to her readers, you know, I'd hear about some of the divorces that would go well, as in they would be civil to each other and they were very kind and considerate. And I'd think, wow, this is so romantic. They must have really loved each other. <laughs> and I think there's an element of truth there. I, I don't think that success is defined by the length of time that the relationship is intact. I think it's that's part of it. But and a relationship that ends well can be just as successful because maybe the relationship didn't end, maybe the nature of the relationship just changed. Um, in the Minimalists podcast, they actually have an entire episode de dedicated to breakups. And there's a guest speaker who's talking about his experience with what sounded to me like a very mindful dissolving of a relationship where both of the two people involved were extremely mindful about every move that they made and they were deliberate about how 
they engaged with the separating and the sort of dividing of their lives. And I didn't see any loss of love in it, not with what the story, not with the story he was weaving for me, at least. And so in my mind, that is far more of a success story than the married couple who've been together for 50 years, but they live in separate townhouses because they can't stand each other's company. So I guess then maybe the question that highly sensitive people tend to struggle with is how do I have success in a relationship where I can have both longevity as well as joy? I don't have the answer to that, but I kind of want to go back to that metaphor of the dance. You know, every once in a while you stumble across those couples who seem to have figured out the magical algorithm for longevity and joy, and still, you get behind closed doors and almost all of them will tell you it took a lot of work and that it still takes work. But nevertheless, you do see an element of ease between them, that small spark of something between these two goofy humans who are still into each other enough to stay in one another's lives in a very uniquely partnered way. I think it's a combination of dumb luck, is, in other words, the songs that we're playing that the DJ chose were songs that both of these partners could dance to on their own as well as together. It's also um, the willingness to, to let go of being perfect in favor of just enjoying the dance, not being so attached with how well the, each person dances, but simply moving with it and doing their best not to hurt each other along the way. <laughs> because you have to understand that there is no such thing as success or failure when you're dancing. You're successful so long as you're in the room. So long as you continue to engage in, the, in, the, in any kind of dance, you're succeeding. And sure, maybe we meet someone that we learn to dance with to all the nutty songs of life with. I'm sure that would be wonderful. But it's no less of a success if you find yourself partnering and then falling back solo, finding a new partner, and then retreating back to your own devices again. It's not even a failure if you decide to sit an entire song out in favor of collecting yourself and running to get a drink. It's just like in yoga studios everywhere, what they say is just don't leave the room. Just stay on the mat. <laughs> keep dancing. You know, this might be all there is, so let's just keep dancing. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, number one, I, you know, what are your struggles, your challenges in romance? Do you have any? Um, and number two, what are some strategies that you've developed over time, if you've developed them, that have helped you? I mean, I can talk a little bit about the things that have helped me. I, and I've mentioned some of the things that I've gleaned from my experiences, but I want to hear about yours. So if you would love to continue this conversation, please feel free to reach out. Uh, you can catch me at www.thehealthysensitive.com. And yeah, look forward to hearing your thoughts. Look forward to hearing to you know expanding the conversation. And I will be checking in with all of you next week. Take care.